The reason why I took time to sort of give you a historical overview rather than just teach you uh, about how you get saved is because you need to know all of that was moved throughout history to bring it to you at this moment in time. Okay, the history of salvation is the history of the world and the redemptive plan of history, which is how God moved heaven and earth to save us from our sins. Welcome to the Followers of the Way podcast for November 25th, 2018. Today, Brother Omar brings us a message called Statement of Faith, Doctrine of Salvation. Brother Omar teaches us that sin, or all unrighteousness, is a state of being. He says that the righteousness that we once had in the garden was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. He also reminds us that there is no human remedy for sin, and since we as humans are corrupt, we cannot fix the situation of sin on our own. But God did not abandon us within sin. Rather, he carved out a way for us to get out. Now, Brother Omar says that salvation is not just about you being forgiven of your sins, but it also has to do with God moving all of history down to this very moment to include all the promises that God gave to his people. So grab your Bible and follow along with us as we explore God's word here on Followers of the Way. Today we begin next section of our series, which is the doctrine of salvation. Uh, doctrine of Salvation. We have been uh, talking about the doctrine of sin. We spent, I believe, three sermons on that. And these, this whole series is basically the elemental teachings of the Christian faith, basically. Uh, this is our basic beliefs. In the book of Hebrews, these are called milk, which is funny because the writer of Hebrews sort of gets annoyed at the fact that his audience that he was writing to were stuck on these things for years. They were like, you guys, you know, you should be masters by now, but you still in the milk. And um, so if he was here today, he would be aggravated at me. We've been at this for about a year now. But nevertheless, here we are today. And in a way it's a little bit, I don't want to say sad, but the fact that the church today, we are still, you know, we don't even teach this stuff. Where in the Bible, the writer of Hebrews consider this stuff milk. This is what you give to babies. You should move on from here. That shows you how far away we are from New Testament Christianity. Not that these things are not important because milk is important, right? Milk is important. But, you know, these are elementary teachings of the Christian faith. So, you know, as a church, that's why we sort of, as soon as we got the statement of faith down, first decision was we got to teach through it. Because we gotta, we gotta start off with the milk to move on to other things. So, you know, we're we're in the statement of faith, doctrine of salvation. Today is gonna be an introduction. You know, I'm gonna do like a sort of overview of the doctrine of salvation. Then we will get into details of it. The doctrine of salvation is the heart of our faith. This is the fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith. God saves you. I mean, boils down to that. As simple as that. God is a God who saves people. And the doctrine of salvation, there's a lot to it that we're going to cover. Christ, His incarnation, His death, burial, resurrection, the gospel, justification, sanctification, and all these things. 
all are under the umbrella of salvation. All of this, these things are salvation. It, 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 it's just a really comprehensive doctrine. So today I want to do an introduction. So when I come back, you know, we can start sort of breaking it down. On the doctrine of sin, just a, a quick summary we've talked about so far is there are different aspects of what sin is. We talked um, about the legal aspect of sin, which sin in its broad general definition is transgression of the law or lawlessness or iniquity, depending on your translation. That is sort of like the legal broad aspect of what sin is. There is a law, you break it, you sin. Simple as that. But the law here, also we talked about, refers to God's moral law, which is codified in the Ten Commandments or the Decalogue, as it's called. So, you break the law and the law wins, as the song says. So, if you steal, you break the law, you incur punishment, basic, broad definition of what sin is. Furthermore, sin, last time we spoke, is also a condition or a state unto which we are born into as the result of Adam's sin. So, more than just breaking a law, sin is a state of being that we're born into as a result of the fall of Adam. Sin drove a wedge between Adam and God, and as a result of that, the relationship between God and man was severed, and he became a fallen creature. We, along with him and everybody else, are fallen. The righteousness that we had in the garden with God was lost, and the image of God in man was marred. Though still there, we lost the original Imago Dei along with communion with God. So Adam sins, his relationship with God is severed. He's casted out of the garden, which is sort of like a symbol of communion with God and fellowship with him, etc. He's out in the world on his own without God, and his nature now changes. One of the things that happened, if you, know, if you read the account, of the fall is that when man sins, shame comes in. That's the first thing that happens. He never experienced that before. His conscience realized there was an issue, right? He realized that he, got, he was polluted, so he feels shame. Then that is followed with guilt, which is followed by the fact that they became afraid of God, so they hid from God. They didn't want nothing to do with God now. So, so Adam, in and in the account, as simple as it is, has this relationship with God, where God is speaking with him, communing with him, he sins, shame comes in, guilt comes in, and they hide. They don't want nothing to do with God now. So there was a change in the relationship between God and man caused by sin. So, you know, sin separated man from God. God cast them out out of the garden, representing a loss of fellowship. Furthermore, because of our corrupt natures and sinfulness, we become enemies of God. That is important for us to understand that outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. In what sense? Because God is good and He is just. His law needs to be upheld. So those who break His law immediately set themselves as the opposite. 
So a judge is going to be an enemy of a criminal. Just simply by the fact that the criminal breaks the law, the judge is going to be the criminal's enemy. The judge is going to oppose the criminal simply because the, the judge upholds the law as it is. God, as a good judge, is set himself in opposition to the ones who break his law. So, in Romans chapter 5, verse 10, it says this, For if while we were enemies... We were enemies. We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So the Apostle Paul makes it clear we were enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So we were enemies of God in our minds because of our doing of evil deeds. So God, as a good judge, set himself in opposition to those who break his law. So... God must enact justice, and if his, if his law has been broken, then for the law to be upheld, there must be punishment. Moreover, God's law, and this is very important to understand as a Christian, that God's laws are not just mandates. He's just, just not telling you what to do. But God's laws are descriptions of reality. In other words, God's law simply says that this is how the world was designed to exist. When God says, thou shall not have any other gods before me, it's because there are no other gods before him. It's just him. So you worship God because he is the only God. So why worship other gods? Why live a lie? You're living something that is not true. There is no other God but who God is. And so God's law, His commandments are not just God just telling you to do something, but it's also Him describing to you this is how things work. So sin, more than just breaking a law, is also a corruption of the reality. It's breaking down how things were designed to be. So, for example, the Eighth Commandment establishes private property, right? Thou shalt not steal. Why? Because whatever you take belongs to that person. So that is private property begins there, right? The idea that we all have property begins there in the Eighth Commandment. Why? God owns everything. So God gives and delegates to people whatever they have, your house, your car, or whatever you have it because God gave it to you. God didn't give you of Stephen's car. So you don't take Stephen's car because God gave it to him through whatever means he did it. He worked with the talents and life and breath and energy that God gave him. He bought a car. You don't take it because that belongs to him. So when human beings do not obey that law and start stealing, what they're doing is they're robbing peoples the things that God has given them. And as a result of that, it, when you, that begins to get worse and worse and you establish systems of stealing, like communism and all these countries when nobody has private property, what happens? Poverty, misery, and all these things begin to happen. Hunger, starvation. Why? Because you're going against the established reality that God has designed. God has designed the world to work in a certain way, and His commandments reveal how the world works. So, God's commandments are a description of reality, 
And therefore, when he's telling you to do something or commands us to do something, he's not just telling us to, to do it, but also telling us this is how you should live truly and genuinely in accordance to his will and the way that he designed things. So think of it as a car manufacturer, right? He tells you to change the oil every 5,000 miles. Okay, that's a command, that's a rule, you should change the oil every 5,000 miles. That's not just him telling you to do that. He designed the, the engine in such a way that if you don't do that, then the engine breaks down quicker. Now, it can start out pretty good. Eventually, it's going to break down. Why? Because this is how the engine was designed to be, right? So, socialism starts great. As it goes down the road, communism becomes you know, it just gets worse and worse and mystery happens. Why? That's just the way things are. So God's law are descriptions of reality. God is the creator who made us. And therefore, sin is not only just a breaking of a law, is a condition in a denial of reality. It's going against God and the things that he designed. Now, this state of sin is final. There is no human remedy for it. Human beings cannot come up with a remedy for this because human beings are corrupt. So any solution is going to be corrupt because our nature is corrupt and sinful and cannot produce any righteousness to remedy our problem. Our state of sinfulness cannot be undone. It could be hidden for a little while externally, but it will eventually come back up. So we cannot fix this situation, okay? You can hide it. You can listen to some motivational speaker telling you how to act or whatever, and you can get it down. But the state of sin into which we're born cannot be remedied by human beings. So this is the world of man without God, left on his own, spiraling out of control into perdition and disaster, unless God makes an intervention. Now, the, why the doctrine of sin is important? Because it makes you realize that without God, there is no hope. Reason why it's important for us to understand how sinful we are is because we understand that God alone is the solution. And our trust and our hope is in God alone, not in methods, not in ideas, but in God alone is our solution. So, God's intervention, Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. This is the beginning of your salvation. Was How many thousands of years was this? 6,000 years ago, maybe? 5,500 years ago? Let's read. The Lord said to the serpent, now we know who the serpent is, okay? Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." So here's the first glimmer of hope given to humanity. Written by Moses 1,500 years before Christ, 
Moses wrote this by revelation of something that happened 3,000 years before Moses was born, or 2,000 years, something like that, about the first promise of God. God speaks to, no, notice, he's talking to the serpent who is the devil. Okay, this is God face to face, so to speak, with the devil and saying, because you have done this, this is what's going to happen. Furthermore, there's a sentence that has been declared upon your life now. Okay, you have been judged. There's going to be an offspring of the woman. Notice, this is very interesting. If you read ancient literature, when you talk about offspring or, or seed, it's always in reference to the father or the man, right? The man's offspring. Here, there is no man. It's the woman's offspring. So this woman is going to have an offspring without a man. So this is interesting. This is 4,000 years before Christ, okay? The plan is being laid out. Furthermore, that this offspring, this seed, was going to bruise the serpent's head. This offspring was going to destroy the works of the serpent, that is, um, the devil, and be bruised by the serpent. This is such a simple phrase, yet so big and comprehensive and profound, foretelling of very, very distant events that were going to happen in the future. From this moment on, God is going to guide all of humanity to fulfill that prophecy that he just gave. The rest of your Bible is God's maneuvering humanity to bring it to that point to fulfill this prophecy that he just gave. So, God is addressing the devil face to face and he pronounces a judgment and his eventual demise. So the Bible rolls on for thousands of years, and then we get to another promise in Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to give you an overview of salvation. Genesis chapter 12 verse 1 says this, Now the Lord said to Abram, or Abraham, he later became, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Notice the I, 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 I through that. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And here's the promise. God says in you. All the fam families of the earth shall be blessed. Now you have to put yourself in Abraham's shoes, right? Abraham lives in Ur of the Chaldeans, which is Iraq today, right? So this guy, this is ancient history. This is in the darkness of the earliest times, okay? Internet, electricity, forget it. That's not even, you know. God speaks to him and says to him, I'm not, I have not given up on humanity. I will bless all the families of the earth through you. Furthermore, in Genesis 15, this is one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, God gives Abram a promise 
And also, God assures this with a covenant. Genesis 15 says this, And he brought him outside, this is Abraham, and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And Abraham believed God, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So God says to Abraham, Look to the stars, count them, and I'm going to give you an offspring, you know, that is going to be as numerous as those stars. But then God, if you look at the account, look it up here. So I want to be able to read. I didn't put it all in my notes. If you look at the account, it says this. No, verse 7. I am the Lord who brought you out of, from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, if you notice, God always does this. I am the Lord who brought you out. I did this. I began this thing. You didn't do nothing, okay? But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He's talking about the land. He said to him, Bring me a, a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark, and behold, smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Raphaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So God says to him, not only would I give you this land, I will make you a blessing, and I'm going to pledge myself before you and all of heaven that I'm going to do what I just said. And by the way, I'm going to give you the history of the next 400 years are going to happen. Your people are going to go into a land they're going to be slaves, then I'm going to rescue them, and I'm going to bring them back here where you're at. This is the, this is, I'm, I'm running this show, and I'm going to pledge myself to, to fulfill the promise that I just gave you. This is God sovereignly moving all of history to fulfill the promise or the prophecy that he gave. So God covenants with Abraham and foretells the next few hundred years of history uh, for the offspring of Abraham and the Jewish and the Israeli people. So, years go by, everything that God says happened the way God said it was going to happen, and we end up with a guy named Moses. God, again, makes a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. He gives him the law before the covenant is, but before the covenant is completed. So, he, as he's given the covenant, the people rebels, okay? So Exodus chapter 34, this is, you can go to Exodus, go to Exodus 19. We'll read a little bit. 
Go to verse 2. And they set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called them out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell, them, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a treasure possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God says to Israel, now, I, I brought you out of, out of Egypt, same story. I took you out. I brought you to myself. I'm going to pledge myself to you. If you keep my covenant, you will be to me a treasure possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. So God gives Israel a law, and he gives himself. Remember, Adam loses God. We lose God at the garden because of sin. God comes back to us, to the people of Israel that he covenants with, by proxy. The Jews had God by proxy, through the means of the ceremonies, the temple, and the atonements. God's presence will come down upon Israel. It was a temporary form of fellowship that he had with them. It wasn't what was with Adam, but it was God coming down. And also, if you read... You can go to Exodus 34. I have it here. I'm going to read it to you. If you read this covenant, which I won't, we don't have time to get to it, it's not a covenant or of works. It's a covenant of grace. In Exodus 34, like I said, halfway through God giving them the covenant, they rebel. They built a golden calf. They worshiped the golden calf. They wanted to go back to Egypt. God gets angry. You know, Moses goes down and sees this and he throws the tablets down and, and come back up. Then we get to the point that Moses intervenes and he prays to God. And in praying to God, God forgives the people and renews the covenant. And this is why he says, Exodus 34, verse 6 says this, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is God proclaiming. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's and the children's children's to the third and fourth generation. Notice the emphasis. The Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. This is not, you obey me, you break the rule, I cast you out. This is, if you stay and value me, and worship me, I will forgive your iniquities. When you sin, I will forgive your iniquities. I will be slow to anger. I will not 
you know, cast you out easily, right? All they had to do, the people of God, the people of Israel, was keep themselves in the love of God with their attitudes towards Him. And that temple, atonement for sins, you know, God will pardon their sins. But the question is, how could God do that? You know, where is all this grace coming from people who are breaking His law constantly? Well, let's keep reading. The Bible keeps on going. So, um, remember that this covenant, you have the Mosaic Covenant, is undergirded by the Abrahamic Covenant. Remember the Abrahamic Covenant was like, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. God calls Moses, makes him a nation. Okay, gives him the law. Okay, so... Years go by, the people of Israel rebels, like you and I would have, okay? Israel continues to rebel and disobey God and begin to suffer the curses of the covenant. Eventually, the nation divides and a civil war ensues. This is 2 Chronicles and 2 Kings. This is that part of the Bible where it gets weird, where it says, and the Jews came up against the Israelis, and you're like, what? You know, Jews and Israelis, well, the kingdom divided. So the southern portion became the Jewish people, and then the northern portion was called Israel. So they divide. The northern kingdom is judged by God. They vanish onto Assyria. The southern kingdom is held in captivity in Babylon. Now, you should know this because, you know, we've been in, in the book of Daniel now for a little while. All right. So the book of Daniel tells the story of the Jewish people in captivity in Babylon. So in Daniel 9, and I, I cannot get much into this because Pastor Bolden will preach through this quite detailed, I'm sure, and solving all the issues. Daniel 9, but I want you to read how Daniel knew his Bible, okay? Mm -hmm. All right. Then I turned my face to the Lord, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, the King James says, and terrible God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, we spoke, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, our fathers, and all of the people of our land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. And at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all of Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he said before us by his servants and the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. 
all of Israel. And before this, it was a civil war, before they went into captivity, right? So the, the, the guys in the south, and you had the guys in the north, and thinking, well, we're a little bit better. And No, he says, we all, all of Israel, north and south, has sinned against you, and we have broken the covenant. Notice his emphasis, God is the steadfast love. He pardons, he forgives, yet we turned aside, we turned aside, and now we're suffering the consequences and the curses of this covenant is falling upon us. So at this point in time, God's plan seems to not be working out because the great nation that God was going to build and bless all the families of the earth just fell apart, doesn't even exist at this point, and the quote-unquote, good chunk is in captivity at Babylon, right? So, again, God, this seems to be his M.O., goes to Daniel and gives him, here's the next 400 years of world history, okay? He's going to lay out for you in great detail the next 400 years and these visions that I just gave you, okay? Within this next couple of 400 years, I'm going to give you a deadline, we had a covenant. You guys are not keeping it. I'm going to give you some time. And so God speaks to Daniel and says to him, 70 weeks or 77s or 77 are decreed to your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal the vision and the prophet and to anoint the most holy place. So I'm going to give you 70 weeks. Now these weeks are not just 70 weeks of days, but they're 70 weeks of years. So put together, this amounts to about 490 years. So the next 490 years, which correspond to the whole visions of the beasts and, and, and the, uh, the statue, all of this is running parallel, okay? All of those things that Olu's been talking about, are going to happen after Daniel, and they're all going to run parallel, okay? And so he gives him this timeline, and he says, I'm going to do this because I'm finally going to put an end to the transgression. I'm going to put an end to sin. I'm going to atone for iniquity, and I'm going to bring everlasting righteousness, okay? I'm going to seal this whole thing. Your people have been given a timeline. You, your people, he's talking to the people of Daniel, this is what's going to happen, okay? And so, this is, we're looking at thousands of years. Notice, you see, when you read through your Bible, you need to realize, you go from Genesis to Exodus, and from Exodus to Numbers, and from there you go to Kings. Okay, you're reading through it. You're reading thousands of years. God is keeping all of this together and connected through all those thousands of years. He's carrying the world somewhere. And so, from there, the 70 weeks happen. Now, if you look at this, there's different ways. Pastor Bolden is going to explain in great detail how this works out. But if you follow, if you run these weeks, these years together, you end up, in the ministry of a man who was born of a woman. He's an offspring of a woman without a human father. Okay? And this man, 
in the book of Matthew, this, this is, a, I'm give, I told you I was going to give you a whole historical overview of your salvation, okay? In the book of Matthew. Meanwhile, all the prophecies are being fulfilled here, etc. And but, in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if you remember, all these beasts in Daniel represent them, all these kingdoms, but there was going to be a kingdom at the end that was going to be greater than all these other kingdoms. Okay? That corresponds to this timeline that God gave, and then the 70 weeks that God is giving, and then here comes this guy, and he's like, uh, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, saying, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John, and he describes what John was doing. Um, he wore camel's hair, leather belt around his waist, etc. He's out in the wilderness of Judea. Then Jesus, verse 13, came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. Why do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest on him, and behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So from there, Jesus goes to the wilderness to meet the serpent. So Jesus is tempted by the serpent, the devil. So here you have God in flesh, face to face with the serpent in the garden from 4,000 years ago. And God, in human flesh, Jesus Christ, is going to tell the serpent, your time's come. Remember I told you? This, it's now. It's about to happen. And so, the serpent tempts Jesus, or the devil, however you want to call him. He tempts Jesus. He doesn't sin. And Jesus, after the temptation, begins his ministry. And this is what the ministry of Jesus, this is how it begins. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that when he, that which was spoken by the prophets of Isaiah might be fulfilled. So Jesus, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is doing these things and he's saying, I'm doing this to fulfill of righteousness. I went here so this which was spoken by the prophet might be fulfilled. Jesus is simply doing these things, fulfilling these prophecies. This is God once again moving the world to that point that he's taking this whole thing. So, when Jesus begins preaching, 4.23, he went to Gal all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread through all of Syria and they brought him all the sick and those afflicted with various diseases and um, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And 
great crowds followed him from Galilee to the capitalists and from Jerusalem to Judea and beyond the Jordan. So Jesus begins to do something that has not been done in 400 years. He's speaking for God. He's healing the sick. He's showing all these things. And he is saying the gospel of the kingdom is here. When Jesus begins preaching, and you see this in the book of Luke, he begins his message by saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What time is he talking about? 70 weeks were appointed to your people. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did God told Israel if they kept his covenant? What were they going to be? They were going to be a treasure possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Jesus is keeping the covenant of Moses. Jesus becomes the true Israel. He's keeping the covenant. The kingdom of heaven is at hand because I am here and I am he who was promised. So when you go to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us in the New Testament that not only are you saved, Ephesians chapter 1, let's go to Ephesians chapter 1. This is God giving you an overview of your story. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, chose us in Him, not to be in Him, clarification, to be holy, that we should be holy, that we should be holy, that we should be a holy nation, and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished, up, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. So God's plan is fulfilled entirely in Jesus Christ the offspring of the woman who stepped on the head of the serpent. So your salvation began 6,000 years ago. When God went to the serpent and said to the serpent, You're, you did what you did, but the offspring of the woman is going to step on your head. Okay? And then he goes to Abraham and says to him, through you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That was your salvation. That's when it began. Not when you got saved and you went to the altar or whatever. Okay, that's when, that's when you got saved. But your salvation, the salvation that God wanted to bring upon the world began 6,000 years ago. Meaning that God did not abandon us to our sins. Furthermore, he pledged himself. This is why you read Ezekiel. He says, for the sake of my great name, I shall do these things. Why? I pledged myself. I put my name on the line back with Abraham. 
So for the sake of my name, I'm going to do these things. I'm going to spring uh, clean water on you. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to take away your heart of stone. All those scriptures, he says, I will do this for my sake of my great name because I've pledged myself to do this to Abraham in front of the whole world, in front of the whole of creation. I, God, will do this. Jesus Christ is the offspring of the woman. And we being in him, that's why Paul makes the emphasis, in him, in him. Be, when we are in Christ, then we are recipient of all the promises. Christ, your salvation, includes your redemption, your um, forgiveness of sin, and all the promises that God gave to Israel who were fulfilled in Christ. And if you're in him, you get them also. So Romans chapter 8 says this, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he's talking to Christians. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you shall live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself uh, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Christ is the heir of all of the promises. But if you're in Christ, you're heir, you're an heir of God with Christ. So you will be given all of the promises that God promised to Abraham and that covenant are also yours. Romans chapter 4 says this. Who does that include in these promises that we've been given? Who do they include? So he says this. For the promise to Abraham, this is verse 13, 413. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but, but there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be a guarantee to all of his offspring. Not only to the adherents of the law, that will be the Jewish people, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and call into existence the things that do not exist, in hope he believed against hope, that's a great phrase, that he should become the father of many nations, as he has been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or even when he considered the barrenness, the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No one believed made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he, as he gave glory to God, fully convicted that God was able to do what he had promised. Abraham is the father of us all. His covenant that God made with him is the covenant upon which we stand. And if you go to 1 Peter, this is completely fulfilled to you in 1 Peter. It says this, chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for the spiritual milk, 
that by it you may grow up to salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by man, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You are a holy priesthood. So God said, Israel, if you keep this, I will make you a kingdom of a priest. You will be a prized uh, possession to me and a holy nation. But if you read in Peter, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, a prized possession of God, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but you are now God's people. Once you have not mercy, but now you have mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what Peter is, is basically telling Gentiles who are in Christ is that the promises that God gave to Israel are yours. You have become those things that God said Israel will become if they obeyed because the true Israel, who is Jesus Christ, fulfilled the law, fulfilled the covenant. And those who are in him have now become, by faith, the things that Israel was supposed to become. Amen. So your salvation... The doctrine of salvation begins all the way back there, all the way down to you here right now today. God is blessing all the families of the earth through that covenant that he made with Abraham fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Now, what happened to the serpent? The serpent has been defeated at the cross. Christ had to be bruised. We know that. He was bruised for our iniquities. But he's... He stamped or he stumped the head of the serpent. The devil has no longer power over those who are in Christ. He may run around, but the king now is King Jesus. And in, in Revelation 1, this is becoming one of my favorite verses. John, in verse 4, to the seven churches that are in Asia... He says this, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings on the earth to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's now the ruler. It's no longer the devil. The nations that the devil showed to him in the temptation, if you worship me, I'll give you all these kingdoms. They're his. They're his now. He's the ruler over all of them. He was bruised, but the devil was defeated at the cross. I love it when Jesus says the king of the world, the ruler of this world is coming, but he's got nothing on me. Just as he's going down to the cross, it says the, the prince of this world is coming, but he has nothing on me. He's fixing to be defeated. So God fulfilled his promise that he made. And, and when he told the serpent, you will be judged. Well, the serpent was judged. Jesus says when the helper comes, 
I don't have time to go there. But the helper comes. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, of judgment. And then he says, for judgment for the prince of this world has been judged. That is the devil and that is the serpent. So the doctrine of salvation, your salvation, is not just you having your sins forgiven, but it's the history of the world from the beginning of time coming all the way down to you, God moving all of history down towards that moment and bringing salvation to all who would believe. And it includes all the promises that God gave to Israel. That they be blessed, they would be a holy people, etc. All of those are yours. And the promises of God are what? Yea and amen. In Christ, in Him. So, our salvation, the reason why I took time to sort of give you a historical overview rather than just teach you uh, about how you get saved, is because you need to know all of that was moved throughout history to bring it to you at this moment in time. Okay? The history of salvation is the history of the world and the redemptive plan of history, which is how God moved heaven and earth to save us from our sins. So... Put that or, or keep that in perspective when you think of your salvation and when you got saved, that it began all that time ago. And it will continue all the way until the end. Because the Bible, you know, God gives us the history of the next couple. God also gave us, you know, read in the book of Revelation. This is going to end up with men from every tribe and tongue and nation worshiping before the Lamb, saying, holy, holy, holy. That's how this is all going to end one day. We don't know when, but one day you, me, some guy from China or whatever are going to be worshiping the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world before his throne saying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. In English, in Spanish, in German, and whatever other country. So um, the doctrine of salvation is this overarching theme in the Bible. I wanted to give you the history of it, not just, you know, because it entails so much more. And part of it sometimes that I think is neglected has to do with, you know, when we get when we talk about salvation, we just think, oh, when we got saved and we got forgiven. Okay, that's your first step in salvation. Salvation has to do with all of this history and all the promises of God and his covenant that he has made in Christ. So Keep that in perspective because this is a great thing, a great work that God has done on behalf of us and, and for us. So as, as we think about the gospel and salvation, we need to keep all of this in mind um, because it makes, you, it, makes, it, it makes it so big to me when I, when I read it. It's like this is unbelievable to me. You know, it's too big. I can't comprehend it. Why would he do it? I don't put up with people at work. Why would God put up with sinners for all this time to bring him salvation? So anyways, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and um, your steadfast love that you have, Lord. Um, we thank you that you are merciful, forgiving, sovereign, powerful, omnipotent, and that you, can, you brought all these things about for the sake of those who would believe in you, Lord, and find salvation in Christ in you. We thank you, Lord, 
for your Holy Spirit, Lord. We thank you for your word that, that shows us and reveals to us all these things. And I pray that you may help us um, not only understand them, but remember them, appreciate them, and keep them in perspective, Lord, and that you may grow us learning your truth, Lord, um, that we may become uh, more and more in conformity to the people who you want us to be and to look like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Followers of the Way podcast. If you like more information about Followers of the Way Church, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash FOTW Church. We trust and hope that you've enjoyed hearing God's word and how to apply it to our lives. Our podcast is updated weekly, so remember to follow us here at Followers of the Way.